Hey friends, welcome to another episode of the Making Room on the Pew podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to make sure that I take the time to say Black Lives Matter. I don't want to be ambiguous or confusing about my stance regarding the current events in America and really around the world as our black and brown neighbors fight for justice and equality. Black and brown lives not only matter, but are beautiful and sacred and cherished and holy. Black lives matter. Today on the podcast, we have an amazing woman I am so excited to have had the opportunity to sit down with, Tori Williams-Douglas. Tori is an anti-racist educator, writer, and content creator. She is so smart and kind and fierce and passionate, and I know you are all going to absolutely love her if you don't already know her. So I want to let you know that Tori and I actually had this conversation before the pandemic hit, before Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd were needlessly murdered by the police. I think it's important to say that because we don't talk about what's happening in America and really across the world with Black Lives Matter and protests and calls to defund and abolish the police because it hadn't happened yet. So while we don't talk about that specifically, this conversation is really timely. Tori is absolutely amazing at what she does, which is to educate people about racism and the history of Black experiences in this country and really how we can partner as white people with our Black and Brown friends and family to learn, grow, and become not just not racist, but really anti-racist. Tori is also the creator of White Homework, which white friends, I really recommend you pay attention to right now, Um, especially if you are having that feeling, that pull toward better educating yourself, your family, your kids, whoever you have in your sphere of influence. Through White Homework, Tori is teaching the folks Dr. King called people of goodwill how to do the work that is ours in our own communities. She says that we can't fix this on our own, but we can partner with our black and brown neighbors to improve outcomes one family at a time. Tori is creating a more just and equitable society, and I really hope you join her in her work. She is just such an important voice, and I am really honored that she agreed to have this conversation with me. Well, Tori, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Um, I'm really excited, so honored to have you on. Um, I gave you a little um, bio, I guess, um, before you and I started talking, but I really want to give you the time and the space to tell our listeners who maybe haven't connected with you yet um, about yourself and your work, whatever you'd like them to know. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, uh, I'm. Thank you so much, first of all, for having me on. This is very, very kind of you. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I apologize. I'm also. I'm getting over a cold. Um, so That's if, okay. I just, if I just randomly burst 
out coughing, I'm, I'm so sorry. It's just, <laughs> I have this tiny lingering cough that just like erupts out of me sometimes. <laughs> no worries. Um, okay. So who am I? That's a really good question. I never know how to answer it. Um, so I am, um, a writer, I guess, primarily and, um, and anti-racist educator and consultant and, um, that's kind of the bulk of what I do. Um, I started uh, White Homework because people on Twitter kept coming to me and saying, hey, I want to be involved in like anti-racist work, but I, and I read all these books, but I don't really know, like, what am I supposed to do? Um, so I started kind of compiling a list of resources for people and um, I just kind of, I put, I put it all on the website because it was just easier than like every single time somebody came in having to like walk them through it or send them to like all these different places it was like okay you can go here read this you know you can find these these resources podcasts books um and so yeah right now i am excuse me actually working on a book for white homework which i'm really excited about um so turning that into a book and then um also launching a podcast for that. And um, what else am I doing? I have to think about this. I feel like there's just, there's just so, so, so much. <laughs> uh, that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of the overview, I that's think. Good, yeah. Okay. Awesome. So sorry. I like, I just jumped right into that. I am so bad at small talk that I just go so deep, so fast. So sorry about that. No, it's all good. Um, are you, are you an Enneagram person? I love Enneagram stuff. I, yeah. I don't know. Like I don't, I, I'm, I'm a nerd about it. Right. Like I don't actually know that much about, but I've, I've been digging into it a fair okay. bit. Do you know your number? I knew you were going to ask me that. Um, <laughs> so, okay. When I originally tested, I took this free test online, um, that has all this other like kind of it has all this other like astrology and like witchcraft stuff on it and I just thought it was amazing so that that pegged me as a two which I think is pretty normal I think that uh, yeah you know talking about mm -hmm. just completely skipping small talk I think that I think that black women have to be twos otherwise we're perceived as like um we have to present as twos excuse me otherwise mm -hmm. we are perceived as like aggressive loud mean um angry obviously and so and I think because most of the people that put these put the quizzes together like they're not necessarily trauma-informed um and they're usually being put together by white folks and so it just a lot of things just don't occur to them so you know I originally you know two really kind of resonated with me because I do actually love helping people um and, I, and I've always I've always felt that way it's something that brings me a lot of personal fulfillment and enjoyment and so I was like oh, okay that kind of makes sense um and as time went on I realized oh like I disintegrate to five and I was like oh it's probably <clears throat> excuse me it's probably because my mom is an eight right and you can't have two female eights in the same house like that that's not a thing that happens um so like I had to defer to her on everything and she really liked being in control of everything and so I realized, I was like, oh, okay, well, I just, I, I must be like disintegrating twice, essentially, because I can't disintegrate to eight. Um, long story short, 
I, you know, I took the ready quiz, <laughs> which is more official. That put me as like um, a seven wing eight, okay. which again, I kind, like I kind of get because I do have a lot of sort of chaotic energy, but I think I'm somewhere in between like a seven and an eight if I had to guess right now. Um, but I think I definitely, I think I definitely still disintegrate to five. And I know that, I know that sevens don't do that. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's, yeah. that's kind of where I am. I'm, I'm currently like lost in Enneagram land right now. And, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Let me see if I can turn off, um, all these notifications. That would be polite. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I, um, okay. yeah, I'm not really sure, but somewhere in there, I, I definitely resonate with the, like the chaotic adventurous energy of seven, um, but the and like the very internal sort of strength of eight. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Do you um, do you think that you could be an eight and you just feel like you couldn't because of your mom? Like, do you think that that you may be an eight? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. I think that that's probably most the most likely option. Um, but yeah, it's like you can't just in the context that I was in, it wasn't possible um, yeah. for me to to be that way, right? It was just it was too big of a risk. Um, and so I spent a lot of time either, and this makes sense to me. Like in retrospect, looking back at my childhood, I feel like I spent a lot of time either I had to integrate to two as the, like, as the oldest daughter, or I had to disintegrate to five. So I'm like, it feels like probably based on like orienting myself that way, kind of triangulating, I guess, that I'm probably an eight. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting too, because, um, I have heard that it's so hard to be, um, an eight, and a woman. So I can't imagine being a woman of color and being an eight, how, um, like tricky that must be. Yeah, it can definitely be socially. It can be really hard to navigate. I mean, I think that, um, I mean, I, I, I do think that a lot of black women are eights because there's so much that kind of gets, left to us Mm -hmm. because of just the way the system is set up um there and there's so much just that's just we have to take care of it right so there's very much this idea of like you rise to the occasion and you're getting stuff done am I allowed to swear yeah absolutely (laughs) um (laughs) so I think that that's I think that that's definitely a piece of it and I think that that's a big um but then you really have to like temper that right in public otherwise people call you crazy and like aggressive um but yeah i don't think it's uncommon for black women to be eights necessarily i just think that yeah the way that you engage with the world is um that can sometimes happen that can look really different because i don't think black women especially are allowed to be eights in our society yeah yeah, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, anyway, the reason I brought up Enneagram, I feel like we could sit here and just talk about the Enneagram for the whole time. Um, 
<laughs> is because I totally skipped the uh, small talk because um, I'm a four wing three. So I'm okay. just like, go super deep and like get it done. So that's fun. Um, anyway, all right, back to um, kind of what you were talking about before here. You mentioned that you are an anti-racist educator. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Um, well, it was sort of something that I fell into, I guess, a little bit organically. <laughs> um, but because I somehow, like, after, after let's see, so after um, Michael Brown was murdered in Ferguson, mm -hmm. there, um, I kind of started speaking out online a lot more about um, racism, racial bias, police brutality, and managed to build, like, a decent sized following online. And um, because of that, I, like I said, kind of, it wasn't intentional, but people just sort of started coming to me and asking me, um, okay, like I hear what you're saying, what am I supposed to do? Um, so I, I started, because of that, I started putting together uh, resources for people who were wanting to be better white friends, um, people who are aspiring to be like white allies and, um, teaching, I, I use Twitter primarily, but like educating people on like the ways that racism, um, plays out that aren't overt, um, that aren't explicit. And so I've been able to, I've been able to use my platform a little bit in order to do that. And, um, in, in a broader sense. And also individually, I have people come to me fairly often um, asking about either individual circumstances that they're in with work or um, with, ex with family um, projects that they might be working on with, with school or just personal projects um, and wanting me to like give them feedback on where if there's if there if there's any blind spots that they have which most people i think who interact with me know that they have like racial blind spots but like asking me to point out like where what am i missing here what am i not seeing what are the things that my privilege has like blinded me to up to this point um and using um using the using resources that i've put together also for um for like their, their kids or, um, extended family. And so, yeah, that's been really cool. I, I mean, most of up till now, like pretty much everything I've been, all the work that I've been doing has been like online primarily and like via phone calls and email. Um, so my goal for this year is actually to do some like anti-racist workshops. Um, mm. And I'm actually planning the first one right now. And I'm super, super, super excited about it. Um, and so, yeah, basically teaching people who are interested in learning, right? Because um, there's, there's a lot of people who have no interest in learning anything about this, which I, I can't do anything about that. Um, but teaching people who are interested in learning, like, ways to, um, like, ways, tools, skills that they can use to... Um, work on their own individual blind spots if they were raised in like predominantly white culture, which, you know, most, most white people were, um, there's a handful of exceptions, but yeah. 
Yeah, well, and that's such important work. Um, speaking of white people who were uh, raised in predominantly white spaces, I mean, I grew up in Ohio in the middle of nowhere on a farm, and there were literally maybe five people of color in my entire high school. And that was it. And I did not experience actual race, racial diversity until college. Mm -hmm. And that um, I think is so common and um, so problematic. Um, so I'm really, I'm really thankful for you and uh, that work specifically. Um, I'm wondering, so you talk about how North America has been in state-sanctioned racial terrorism for hundreds of years. I want to talk about that a little bit, mm -hmm. <laughs> because for those of our listeners who haven't done a lot of work around race relations, or maybe, uh, like myself, just have the privilege of not having to think about it. Mm -hmm. um, can we dig into that a little bit? What does that mean, this state-sanctioned racial terrorism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's, there's the two things that I think of um, when I am referring to state-sanctioned racial, racial terrorism um, are the um, theft of land from indigenous people and, and the attempts to wipe them out um mm -hmm. and and slavery um so i try to when i'm kind of in, when i'm when i'm engaging with this and like trying to sort through like because you and i we both had history textbooks that mentioned indigenous people black people Hispanic, Latinx people, um, Asian people in passing. Um, but the main characters in the story were all white, primarily mm -hmm. white men, um, almost exclusively white men, depending on where you, where you went to school. Um, and so for me, the, the reason that I use that language is because I think it is a little bit shocking to people. Um, because we, this isn't, this isn't what we were taught, right? Like this is what our country did. These are actions that um, our country took, or in many cases, you know, in, in, in failing to protect indigenous people and their land and failing to, um, and failing to honor the treaties that they made with indigenous people and failing to protect black people who um, maybe managed to escape from slavery. Like there are, there are all of these like, places where the law really fell short and people white people had essentially free reign to do what they wanted to indigenous land and um and indigenous people and and black people but you know black people coming here not obviously owning any land like being property themselves um and so again the reason that i use that language is because it's like okay look like this is this is these are the definitions right like if if you were to go and you were to like take someone's child from them and force that child to do hard labor until they died right like mm -hmm. whenever that was like you would call that 
you would call that kidnapping, right? Like you would call that abuse. You would call that torture. Like these are, these are all things that we can all agree are like wrong and evil. Right. And so when, when someone in the Middle East does something like that, we call it terrorism. But for some reason, when we look at like the people on our money who made those choices and, and, and made those decisions and abuse people in those ways, like they're like, oh, well, well, we're the good guys. And it's like, okay, what is, how are we, how are we delineating between like, oh, I had good intentions and I was a terrorist versus I have bad intentions and I'm a terrorist. Like what, like, what exactly are you saying when you are trying to defend the actions of say the founding fathers? I think they're the most acute, egregious example, um, who are claiming that they, that they aspire to build a nation that is built around like freedom, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, um, while simultaneously stripping individuals of, of their freedom, of their lives, um, certainly happiness, right? Like when you have everything that you've ever known destroyed, like, so when I, I think that for me, it's the reason that I use that language is because of the double standard that exists culturally. Um, you know, for us, like terrorism, we kind of see that as something like other people, like that's something other people do. Like we don't do that. Um, which is crazy. Like we engage globally in all kinds of actions that I think would, would rise to <laughs> like, would rise to the description of would meet all the qualifications for being called terrorist actions. Um, and even when that wasn't the case, even when the U.S. wasn't involved, you know, before we were kind of like this global superpower, we still we still engaged in these actions at home. Um, and I, I find it, one of the things that I find most hypocritical, I guess, about all of this is, is the, um, the fact that the U.S., you know, was, was kind of the instigator or um, of like the League of Nations and the UN, like we kind of were the ones who really wanted to get the ball rolling on that. Um, you know, we were, were very adamant about enforcing things like, like the Geneva Convention, uh, conventions, I guess there are many, um, and, and these kind of international rules, but then we don't abide by them ourselves. Um, we want everybody else to we want everybody else to do work that we're not willing to do, right? Like we always want this out. And so that's kind of, that, that's, that ends up being the reason that I use that because it's not, you know, what, what this country did to indigenous people, like that is not irrelevant, right? It's not like, oh, it's in the past, it's over. There's nothing. It's like, no, we need to, we need to make amends for this. And that probably feels overwhelming to a lot of people. And, and, and it should, I guess, but it doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter like what, it doesn't matter how large the wrong was. It's, it's not like, okay, if we do something that's so, 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 so evil, we won't have to pay it back. We won't have to make amends. We won't have to do anything differently. It's just like, oh, we'll forget it. We can't make it up. So whatever. Um, and so this is, you know, this is kind of why I'm like, we've been engaging the country. I say we, because, you know, I'm an American. So I'm, I don't know. I, I don't want to say like I'm liable, but I, you know, I've benefited from our like colonial campaign across the planet and, and, and here it, to some extent. Um, 
in the states but um in in really really kind of like digging into this i realized like okay like if we're gonna call things if we're gonna have a consistent moral ethic we need to call things what they are and so i try to be really careful actually about the language that i use um and you know i really like when i say people get really upset at, at me on twitter when i say things like michael brown was lynched and they're like, no, he wasn't. Like, that's not okay. You're being, you know, hysterical or or overreacting. It's like, no, go to the dictionary, look at the definition of the word lynched. What happened to Michael Brown meets that definition. Um, I'm not necessarily one for dictionary definitions for a lot of things, but like that one definitely qualifies. And terrorism is the exact same way. Like, go to the dictionary, read the definition of the word terrorism, and then tell me that is not what what happened for 400 years to in you know, indigenous and black people on this continent. Um, and to, to, and to a lesser extent is still happening. So that's, that's really why I frame it that way um, is because I don't think that we can make any progress if we're not honest about what is actually happening and the ways that white people especially benefit from those atrocities. Yeah, well, and I love that because I mean, you're right. We have to, t we have to be honest. We have to tell the truth about hard things. And um, <laughs> white people are so good at just kind of like sweeping things under the rug. So in order to have any forward motion, we have to be brutally honest um, about these things. Um, so I, I love that you choose your words so carefully to make sure that we are being as honest as possible about um, the things that have happened and are happening in our country um, related to race relations. Um, I'm wondering, you mentioned people saying things like, but slavery has been over for hundreds of years or uh, what racism doesn't exist anymore. I hear that. Um, how do you respond to that? I mean, it's to, to you, to um, people who are willing to actually do this work. Um, we know that those statements are incredibly false and um, not okay to say, but the people who are saying them legitimately don't understand or choose to be ignorant mm -hmm. um, about this. I mean, I'm just, I guess I'm wondering, how do you respond to um, such ignorance when you are asked? I guess I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop there. I feel like I could keep going, but. Um, that is, yeah, for, in terms of, in terms of like racism doesn't exist. Um, I, I always, I, I find it somewhat comical that, that the people who tend to make those kinds of statements have this like mantra of facts don't care about your feelings <laughs> because I'm like, okay, look at the data. Like, it's not, it's not like this big complex thing of like, we, you know, it, it's not, 
it's not like racial forensics to try and it's like, no, we can just look at the data and see like, okay, these policies were passed and this is how, this is how these policies affected white people versus people of color. Right. Um, and I think, so, um, Dr. Um, Ibram Kendi has, um, a book called How to Be an Anti-Racist. And in it, he talks about a lot about policy and also this idea that like what you intend is irrelevant if the consequences of the policy that you've created or the consequence, I, I mean, yeah, it's mainly, it mainly is policy in, in you know, the one specific instance I'm, I'm referring to. Um, but the policy that like we create as a society or the actions that we take as individuals, like if those cause harm, whether or not that was our explicit intention, if it's, if it's harm that is born primarily by people of color, like that is, that's a, that's a racist policy. That's a racist action. Um, and, you know, we can look at, we can look at the effects of policy. We can, we can, measure these things i mean we can look at the data and see okay um so like capital punishment in this country for example like the number of people the number of people who are executed for crimes um we know that there's a disparity there right uh the of the documented executions that we have about 40 percent of the people executed were were black and it's 60% of everybody else. And when you think about the fact that um, Black people have never been more than 12 to 13%, 14% maybe in the past of, of the nation's population, like that is not okay. You're saying that you're executing three times, essentially, like as many Black people per capita as you are everybody else. Um, so... To me, I'm like, okay if somebody is willing to engage, like we can start looking into the data, we can start digging into that and going like, Oh, okay. Like here are, here are these effects of these policies. I think that, um, you know, college, um, and medical school can be like really good examples of like, who's getting in and, and are we like, are people being admitted to, to programs, um, or excluded, based on like do you have a very typical trajectory into you know it, when you were in college like does this look like all the other applications that we've seen that we have successful that have turned into successful examples for our program and you know most most students of color do not have like typical um educational trajectories because we there's less there's less resources you're more likely to have to work and go to school simultaneously you're more likely to have to take care of um a disabled parent or a family or you know a family member sibling something like that um while you're while you're trying to like pursue your education and, and looking at the ways that um the systems are set up for typical majority culture white people um and it wasn't maybe it wasn't like explicit because they didn't have to make it explicit like maybe the university didn't have to say like oh we don't you know we don't accept black students right like maybe they never even had to say that because 
it just didn't matter. You got to the interview and they're like, oh, nope, goodbye. Um, so, I mean, if, if you really want to, if somebody's really sincerely interested and wants to dig into that, there is no area that I am aware of, and I would absolutely love it if somebody could come and correct me on this, where outcomes for white Americans and black Americans are equitable. Um, so talking like healthcare outcomes, educational outcomes, um, job promotions, like being pulled over by the cops, literally, I, like, I don't know of one. And, and we measure that now, like for most of these things we've been measuring for about 50, 40, 50 years, um, pretty explicitly, like with, um, racial demographics included. Um, so, and again, if I'm, if I'm wrong on that, I would love for somebody to tell me like, oh no, here's an area where black people and white people, regardless of like, you know, the zip code that you were born into or, or whatever, have equitable outcomes. I would, if somebody could prove me wrong, I would, I would love it. I'd probably write you a check. Um, just kidding. I don't have checks. Um, <laughs> but so for, for that, I'm like, yeah, like, let's do it. Like, let's dig into, dig into the data and, and figure it out. Um, in terms of, for people asking about slavery specifically, it's like, well, I mean, once slavery was over, you know, I, I'm doing sarcasm quotes right now. Um, <laughs> there, you know, there was, there was a little bit of a lull, but then, and, black people actually had the ability to start building things for themselves. They started getting elected to Congress um, and starting schools and, um, you know, especially like people, white people, white Americans did not like that. And so they created black codes and Jim Crow laws and um, lynch mobs and like brought back the KKK, which was not a super big deal like right at the time like they're you know it's the kkk is kind of ebbs and flows i guess in terms of mm -hmm. the racial terrorism that they specifically commit um but yeah and it's like those those things you know talking about poll taxes and and all kinds of systemic exclusion that didn't just disappear because slavery ended you know they were actually instigated by the fact that black people were experiencing success um i don't know i don't actually know the numbers on that but um looking back at i've been i've been reading a lot this last week about the history of um racial conflicts in in the u.s like in the 1900s specifically um because because i've been writing and like every time you see a successful black community like uh, there it feels like it I, you know I'm, sh I'm sure that there were some that were successful and weren't burned to the ground but it feels like every time I read about a successful black community at some point white people got jealous and decided to just burn the entire thing to the ground um so yeah it's true like slavery did end on paper um in in 1865 was when they finally got to Texas and like told all the people working on in these labor camps, like, Oh, you're free now. Um, but you know, a lot of people, well, there was success initially for, for some, like a lot of people didn't have 
a ton of choices. You're talking about an entire, you know, millions of people who can't read or write. Um, and, you know, don't, don't have any resources are, you know, and so they end up working a lot of the time. They'd end up working a lot of the time for the same people who had kept them in bondage for their entire lives, making next to nothing, or they, you know, they'd be sharecroppers essentially, which is not dissimilar to serfdom um, in a lot of ways. And, you know, there was no way, there was no functional way to get ahead for many people. The people that did get ahead because they had no protection under the law could have everything that they'd worked for stolen and they would have no legal recourse. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, I think it's ridiculous and, and I don't know. I don't, I don't really know who I'm referring to here. I think it's ridiculous to say that, oh, slavery ended, you know, a hundred and some odd years ago, 150 years ago or whatever it was. Um, therefore everything's fine now when you, again, had a century of, of state, state sanctioned or just state ignored, right? Like that, that the state, um, the law would look the other way, racial terrorism. Um, you know, my dad growing up had to use the colored water fountain. So talking about this, like it's ancient history is very misguided and inaccurate and, and an attempt to, like you said, brush things under the rug and, you know, I will absolutely push back on anybody who makes a claim like that with receipts because it's ridiculous. It doesn't matter that like slavery ended when um, black people, indigenous people did not have equal rights. You know, it, you know, maybe it was like a half step better than slavery for many people, but eh, like it's not really impressive. Like it's not, that's not a legitimate starting point, right? Like keeping people on like labor in labor camps for their entire lives like that's not a legitimate starting point so you don't get a bunch of credit for like ending that like it never should have started yeah well I think that's what's so important to remember is just because um on paper Abraham Lincoln wrote something doesn't mean anything when our institutions were were and are so um, biased against people of color and to be frank, racist. I mean, it doesn't really matter that Lincoln signed that piece of paper until we decide that we are all created equal and everyone should have the equal um, opportunities, protections in every single institution in this country. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, also saying um, that, that your dad lived <laughs> through things that we think are ancient history. And you're, you're totally right. In, when I learned about this in high school, I thought, oh, well, that was 100 years ago. I don't think that, yeah, our parents were alive. Mm-hmm. So... I, yeah, I really um, appreciate you pointing those things out. Those are so important um, to remember. Now, I want to acknowledge that while you um, are passionate about these topics um, and you are doing such amazing work educating people 
about this. Um, this also requires a lot of mental and emotional work for you. Um, how can particularly our white listeners and myself, how can we self-educate so that we aren't going around asking so much of strangers on the internet, um, thinking that we are entitled to free education because you're already doing it? Um, honestly, I would say the best, the best way to go about that is just to listen. Um, I mean, like, listen to people of color, be intentional about like who you're following on, on Twitter and Instagram and, and Facebook or whatever social media you happen to be using. Um, I would say that, you know, and it's not, it's not wrong to ask questions, but I think that it is really annoying when people jump in and ask questions like about things that I've been talking about for years. It's like, okay, you haven't, you haven't even done any kind of research here and I'm not going to walk you through, especially on Twitter, because it's like, I have 280 characters. Like, I'm not going to walk you through every single step of this. Like, go read a couple of books and then come back and we can talk. Um, so I would say, you know, do your own, there's, there's a ton of free resources, um, you know, everywhere from a podcast and YouTube to, to the library. Like, um, there are so many books, um, there's so many educators out there. And, um, if, if learning about anti-racism is something that someone is passionate about, like, absolutely like avail yourself to all of that. Um, again, it's not, it's not wrong to ask questions, but people I think have a tendency to come into the conversation saying like, oh, you need to, you need to start with me from square one and walk me all the way through it. It's like, no, like there are books available. The book that I mentioned, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Dr. Ibram Kendi is an incredible resource and one that I would recommend, you know, people start with if they haven't really done a lot of a lot of that work i i know um again i have a bunch of resources on my website which is toryglass.com so feel free to check that out um there's books and podcasts on there um from all kinds of different perspectives um people that i learn from still on a daily basis so yeah i mean i think that people of color who are doing anti-racism work like Honestly, we're doing it because we want to. It's not because someone like coerced us, but um, valuing our time and our emotional energy and like the labor that we put into the work that we do is really important. Um, and I think that, yeah, if you're not, sometimes if you're not sure, the best answer is to just be quiet and keep listening. Um, so yeah, yeah that, that would definitely be my, my advice. <laughs> Yeah, awesome. So I know that there is probably someone, if not several people listening, wondering, because we keep saying anti-racist, what's the difference between being anti-racist and just, you know, not being racist? Um, so again, Dr. Candy talks about this in his book, and really kind of makes the argument that you can't be not racist. Like your actions are either racist is in promoting, um, promoting unequal treatment 
or they're anti-racist. Like there isn't an, there isn't a race Switzerland um, in America, maybe other places, but because of our history, like that just isn't a thing that exists. Um, which can, I think can probably feel really overwhelming to people. It's like, oh, if I'm not actually like doing the work all the time, like I'm, I'm screwing up and it's like, no, like just be aware, right? Like be aware, commit to learning and, and not, um, not assuming. And, you know, at that point, it's like, if you're aware of your actions, if you're aware of the ways that they could affect people and you stop assuming that like what you're doing or that you stop assuming that you're not racist and start paying attention to the effects that your actions, your words, your decisions have on, on other people. Um, like that's 90% of it, honestly. Um, I think that people kind of tend to overcomplicate things, but if you're willing to, like I said, you know, like I said previously, if you're willing to be humble and, and listen and actually engage um, in good faith, like you're most of the way there. Yeah, that is so good. I was um, just typing out like, I don't know, what is this, like six quotes that I heard in there. Um, that's, I mean, I don't know why I'm typing it out. I ha I'm going to have a recording, but, um, <laughs> but uh, that's just, it's so good. Um, and I'm so thankful uh, that you're here and that you're willing to, um, be here with us in this uh, tricky space. Um, last, um, last couple of questions. I guess I have two, two other things I'd like to touch on mm -hmm. um, as we wrap up. Um, to all of the white people listening, how can we be good um, allies? Um, I think that the best way to be a good ally is to understand that it's not up for you to decide if you're being a good ally. Mm. Um, like it's just, if you're white, it's just not a, you know, or whatever, if you're white or straight or cis, you know, like I think I have to think about ways that like my cis privilege probably just gets dumped on trans mm. people. Right. So I don't, I don't ever walk around going like, oh, I'm a really great trans ally when I don't know anything about being trans. Like I have good friends who are trans, um, but uh, that's not my experience. And, and to walk around being like, oh, I know all about this. It's, it's just like, again, having really like a, a posture of humility towards what it is that you're trying to learn and understanding that you don't get to decide that you're a good ally um, is, is really important. Um, you know, and because I think that people of color and, and anyone from like any kind of a marginalized background, um, we, we've, we've always, we've always been talking, right? Like we've always been talking about our experiences and, um, um, so Father Broderick Greer has this quote that I love so much. Um, and he said, there are no voiceless people, only people who don't listen to the margins. Um, and I think that that is probably the most important thing to know about like aspiring to allyship is like the people that you want to support are speaking, like just don't speak over them. Um, so yeah, I would say that's, that's really the biggest thing.
Hmm. Yeah. So, um, this podcast is all about creating a fully inclusive church. Um, and I'm wondering, so my church, for example, um, so my wife is a pastor and we are at this, um, really small church in the suburbs of New Jersey, um, where the congregation is relatively wealthy and, um, completely white. How can predominantly white churches participate in anti-racism work? Um, I would say that probably, let's see, I would say the most important thing is to be, it's somewhere, somewhere in your life. doesn't necessarily have to be at church, um, but somewhere in your life be like under the leadership of a person of color. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're able, I know that some people, you know, just because of logistics, because of location, like that's probably not possible to do in, in like a physical sense. Um, you know, so, so in a situation like that, I would say, you know, maybe do it online, like join someone's Patreon or, or, um, there's lots of different options, um, in terms of, of where to go there. Um, I would say be active regardless, like at church, in your community, at work, at your kid's school, like wherever you find yourself, be advocating for anti-racist education on a consistent basis. Um, and, and being sure like to request that people of color are being brought in to do that work as opposed to white people. Um, I think that creating, so <laughs> the one thing that I'm consistently struck by um, in terms of, of church history in the United States is how much good the church could have done in this country to, to stand against racism and sexism and transphobia and homophobia and everything else, every other ism and phobia that there is. And they just didn't. Mm. And you know, my understand, like my understanding, the way that I, I always read the Bible, even when I was in an evangelical church and apparently wasn't supposed to be reading it this way, was that when Jesus said, like, love your neighbor, he was being literal, right? He didn't mean, oh, bomb them if you're mad at them. <laughs> like, that's, it's like, who's, who's my neighbor, right? Like, when Jesus was asked that question, it's like, okay, really, uh, functionally, everyone is your neighbor when I'm explaining this to you. So, I think that there's so much good still, like the church has the capacity to do so much good um, and really commit to the work of anti-racism. But I think that you really do have to be in some space, you know, and again, if, it, if it's not possible in, in a physical space, like online, like in some space, like be under, like be accountable to a person of color. Um, yeah. I mean, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no, I'm, um, I love that you are, um, giving people a little bit of leeway in being, um, under the leadership of a person of color, but I would like to challenge everyone to really think about it because, um, I don't think it's that difficult, I guess, is I'm, I was trying to think of a nicer way to say, I don't think it's that difficult to actually um, 
seek out relationship with people who are different than us and be humble enough to actually listen and learn um, rather than assuming we know everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I would say too, like um, a lot of people who live in rural areas ask me similar questions, you know, um, online, especially it's like, okay, I don't, there's, there just aren't that many non-white people where I live. Um, so, you know, if you live in a rural area, you might be close to a reservation. So that might be like a way to go. Right. I think that Mm -hmm. we kind of, um, we sort of hinder ourselves when we don't look at the full picture, like the entire, like the demographics of like where we live and like where we work and, um, yeah, I think that, I think that, I think that you're right. I think that it's for 99% of people in this country, it, it's not that difficult. Um, it just takes, it just takes a commitment, something that you have to be willing to, to show up and do. Yeah. Goodness. I am, my, my head is spinning, uh, <laughs> from our conversation. So, um, no, I'm just, I'm so thankful for you and and your work and that you were willing to come on um, the podcast. Um, As we wrap up here, do you want to tell our listeners where they can find you, um, your work? Um, I don't know. Do you have a Patreon? Whatever you want to tell everyone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm mostly on Twitter. I'm at Tori Glass, T-O-R-I-G-L-A-S-S. also on Instagram, same username at Tori Glass. Um, my website is toryglass.com and my Patreon can be found at whitehomework.com. Um, it just forwards to my Patreon there. Um, and then I have on my, on my website, I have a tab called white homework that lists a bunch of resources, um, that you can, for the most part, if you have a library card and an internet, um, and internet access, you can listen to all of them, read all of them for free. Um, that's just, it's just a really good jumping off point for um, learning about, for educating yourself about racism, anti-racism, and, and jumping off points for how to, how to do more work and actually get involved. Wow, right? I frantically took notes through that entire conversation. I hope you felt as convicted and pushed toward action um, as I did with hearing what Tori had to share with us today, especially if you're a white friend like me. This is not Tori's job to educate a white girl from the middle of nowhere, Ohio, and she did not have to agree to come on the show, but she did. And I am infinitely grateful for Tori and her leadership. Remember, if you want to learn and grow and partner with our black and brown friends and family to create a more just and equitable society, I really encourage you to head over to um, whitehomework.com or you can find them on Instagram at whitehomework. And if you do happen to have a few dollars a month to spare, maybe consider becoming a Patreon and supporting Tori monetarily so that she can continue to do this good and important work. You can sign up for that at Patreon. It's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash Tori Glass. I will also link that in the show notes. And of course, you can find Tori at Tori Glass on both Instagram 
and Twitter. So without further ado, here is my conversation about race, white homework, and the difference between being not racist and being anti-racist with Tori Williams-Douglas. <laughs> 